Glad that you're here on our second Sunday of Advent. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. The sermon series is He is Our King. He is Our King. And I thank Jillian and the rest of the team for reminding us all this morning, all the songs we sang were just wonderful reminders of the truth that we're going to talk about during this sermon series. He is Our King. It's a bit long. I normally don't preach on long passages. Pastor Michael does that. I preach on two verses. He preaches on 80. So we're going to go ahead and look at 23 verses, but all the book of Matthew, okay? Chapter 2, starting at verse 1 to 23. We'll park on this for the next three weeks. Here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Real quick, guys, up here. How many of you guys all grew up hearing about there were three wise men or three Magi? Anybody? How many? We don't know. We don't know. The reason why we think there is three is because there was frankincense, myrrh, and what's the third, Michael? Something, right? Yeah. The reason why we think there were three wise men is because of the three gifts. The reality is, the Bible says, we don't know how many wise men or magi came. The reason why I point that out is because sometimes when the Bible is all too familiar, we miss out on the deep truths that are there. So I'm going to force you guys to pay attention, Okay. So we don't know how many men came from the east and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent to them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, uh, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Yeah, right. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen... When it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he learned that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. 
This is God's word. The hardest thing about preaching Christmas sermons is that we have a difficult time understanding what it was like for them. We have a difficult time understanding what the context was like. And in order, for understand, in order for us to understand what Christmas really meant, we need to understand the context. Matthew, if you notice, takes the trouble in his text to tell us about King Herod and his order to murder infants. Let me say this. If you screen out the Herods, you miss the point of Christmas. If you screen out the atrocity and the tragedy of what Herod orders, you miss the point of Christmas. Christmas, for many of us, is an escape. Santa Claus, reindeers, presents, and gifts, and shopping, and clothes, and do-do-do-do. It's an escape. But the point of Christmas is this. The point of Christmas is that what Christ does in coming into our world is not providing us an escape from the real world of problems and tragedy and injustice and death of innocence. What Christ does is he comes into this world, this real world of tragedy, suffering, injustice, takes on the body and form of a human being to address real problems, real issues, real pain, and real suffering. Are you hearing me? The point of Christmas is about a God intervening in human history and coming to bring rescue salvation with skin on it. A God coming into our world to deal with problems of evil and justice, violence and oppression in all their forms to bring real hope to people who really need it. That's the point of Christmas. The The Christmas story is good news spiritually, yes, for those estranged from God. But it doesn't end there. The point of Christmas is that it's good news for people who've lost jobs. It's good news for people who are living under dictatorship. It's good news for people whose homes are being foreclosed on, who are having trouble putting food on the table for the single mom who's overwhelmed with life. It's good news for people who have cancer. Whose, death one, whose loved ones have died. It's good news for real people with real problems, real issues. Christmas is not, isn't it so great that Jesus came so that you could be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven? Christmas is God breaking into human history and all of its suffering and justice and evil and pain and saying, there is good news. Because the God that we worship, he came to deal with this, all of it. Yeah? That's good news. Yes, we celebrate hope Thank you, Michael, for reminding us this morning. Christmas is about hope, joy, and peace. But the Christmas story reminds us, church, that true joy, true peace, and true hope doesn't come from skirting how things really are or avoiding the difficulties of life, but it comes from charging right through them, believing that there's something on the other side. Yeah? That's where hope comes from. That's where hope comes and joy and peace comes from. It doesn't come from ignoring the sometimes harshness and tragedy of life. Why do Christians do this? We think hope and we go, oh, someday. We think peace and we go, oh, if the circumstances were just better. We think joy and we go, if I just had Mr. Right and Mr. Hope, joy, and peace does not come from escape, skirting, harshness, realities but charging right through them and believing there is something on the other side. Amen? That's why we're people of faith. Hmm. It comes from remembering that evil will not have the last word. 
Injustice will not have the last word. Suffering will not have the last word. Sin will not have the last word because the baby born on this day stared at those things and said, I'm going to die for all of this and rise again. That's where our hope comes from. Hmm. Matthew is secretly telling us if the gospel can flourish in a world that produces slaughter of innocence and the cross, it can flourish in our world and in your life today. That's the good news. So what we're going to do for the next three weeks, right, is we're going to sort of do a three-part sermon series, okay? So think Lord of the Rings trilogy, okay? <laughs> oh, no, no, it's not going to be that good. I'm just saying. It's, it's going to have like three parts. No, lower your expect. lower your expect. okay? First part, here's what we're going to ask. What did it mean for them? We have to ask that. Second part is going to be, next week, what does it mean for us? And then third part is, what does it mean for the world? Okay? So if you miss out on one of these, you're going to miss out on the whole picture. So hopefully you can come and be here for all three sermon series. Okay? For all three parts. What did it mean for them? And we need to begin there. What did it mean for them? Here's where we start. Let's start with Caesar Augustus, who's ruling the world from England to India. The question, if you're a Roman emperor and you're ruling the entire known world, how do you rule a tiny little country miles and miles away where it takes nine months to get there? What do you do if you're Caesar Augustus? Here's what they did. According to a Roman historian named Tacitus, there was a long-standing Roman policy to employ kings among the instruments of servitude. So here's what they do. They hire a puppet king to essentially rule on their behalf. And he says, you rule under us and you can rule the people there. So as long as you continue to pay tribute to us and do what we ask you to do and continue to sort of fulfill our expectations, we'll leave you alone and you can continue to rule them. So the Romans go to conquered lands and find a king to rule over them. And in Palestine, they found a guy named Herod. You want to know what he looked like? Here it is. There's a, a bust of him or a picture of him. What do you think? Not that menacing. Here's an artist's rendering of what Herod looked like, right? Oh, now there's a little more. That's a little more menacing, right? <laughs> Leave that picture up there, okay, Josh? Herod, according to the artist. Herod, here's the thing you got to know, is an incredibly complex person. Incredibly complex person. He, he reigns for 33 years. And, and, and you need to know these things about Herod. Number one, racially, he was an Arab. Racially, Herod is an Arab. Some people think he was half Arab, half Jew. But the research that I did in terms of reading some of the books, he was racially an Arab. His father's from an Arab tribe in the southern part of the Holy Land called Idumea. Everybody say Idumea. Idumea. And that's going to come important a little bit later. Racially, he's an Arab. Religiously, he's Jewish. Religiously, he's Jewish. Why? About 135 B.C., the Jewish ruler Hyrcanus conquers the Idumeans, and on the pain of death, forces them to become Jews. Hyrcanus then appoints Herod's grandfather, Antipater, the elder governor of the province, that makes Herod a Jew. Culturally, Herod was a Greek. Greek cultures dominating uh, throughout the known world at the time, including Palestine, and Greek is the language of the international community. So Herod's first language is Greek, and not only that, but he was noted for various attempts to turn Jerusalem into a Greek city, which did not go well with the Jews. Politically, Herod is a Roman. Historians say that Herod sided with uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra in their battle with Julius Caesar for the Roman Empire. Who wins? Do you guys remember? Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar eventually wins. So Mark Anthony Cleopatra obviously loses. And, and what Herod does is he has the nerve to request a meeting with Caesar. And he goes to Caesar, takes off his crown. And he says literally to Caesar, look, I remain faithfully loyal to Mark Anthony Cleopatra to the very end. 
He says, that's the kind of person that I am. And then he said this, apparently, according to some of the historians. <sighs> what I ask you is to consider not whose friend, but what a good friend I was. To which apparently Caesar said, put your crown back on. You can go back to Palestine and you can rule on our behalf. So he's got some you know, okay? So he's one of those guys, okay? <laughs> and if you go, you know what? You got what? Ask, ask people around you, okay? So this is the kind of guy that he is, okay? Let me take you through several dimensions of Herod's reign, okay? He's a fierce warrior. He besieges Jerusalem in 37 BC with a huge army of 11 battalions of infantry and 6,000 cavalry. When the truth poured in, scene of wholesale massacre ensued. Here's a quote according to Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century. For the Jews of Herod's army were determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Masses were butchered in alleys of houses. Herod goes into Jerusalem, butchers people and says, I am doing this by the will of God. Jews are going, by the will of God? Massacre, murder, violence follows Herod wherever he goes. Question, if you're a Jew, do you love Herod or do you resent Herod? The resentment is only going to grow because here's the kind of stuff that Herod did to get a sense of how much he was hated. Remember that Herod wants to keep Caesar happy, otherwise he loses his power. So to make him happy, he's putting up statues and temples of Caesar, dedicated to Caesar, all over Jerusalem. If you're a Jew, you know the Ten Commandments. First one says, have no other gods before me. Caesar claims to be what? A god. Secondly, do not make any graven images, even that of God. So here is Herod flaunting and, and just going about setting up temples and, 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 and statues in honor of Herod in the place that God's people, among God's people, he took a giant golden candle, some historians say, the symbol of the Roman Empire, and placed it above the gateway to the temple of God. So every time a Jew goes to the temple of God, he's reminded that he's going under the very symbol that says, we bow to Caesar. So a group of disciples got together and said, we're not feeling this. So they climbed up, they tore the sucker down. What do you think Herod did? Executed them. You getting a picture of Herod? Let's go, continue to go more. Okay, you got to understand what it meant for them. Herod's building projects. This is the thing that I found fascinating in terms of doing some of the research. Just Google Herod, okay, Herod the Great, and one of the main things that you'll see is that he was this phenomenal builder of things. There was a legend that said King David, when he was fleeing from King Saul for his life, hid out on this out, rock outcropping, which was called Masada. Let me show you a slide. Masada, okay? This is a very well-known site, Masada. And here's what Herod apparently said. He said, if the greatest king of Israel, David, spent time hiding in that cave, Herod said, if he spent time in that cave, he said, I'm going to build a palace where I will live luxury on Masada. So this is an artist's rendering. Next slide, please. He built a three-story palace on Masada where he could live. You're King David. No, he hit, okay. Well, I'm going to build a three-story temple, and I'll live on luxury in Masada. Interesting, right? Let me show you how, how, what an incredible builder he was. He had hot and cold baths and hot tubs installed on top of Masada. There are pipes installed on the floors that circulated warm air. This is 2,000 years ago, okay? He had Italian columns made of solid marble imported from Rome. He has artists come in, paint frescoes on the walls of this massive palace. He had marble inlaid designs put all over the palace with individual tiles. On top of the roof of Masada, where it hadn't rained in 700 years, he has a pool built it. The question is, where do you get water if it doesn't rain? Some historians say that he literally is reshaping the wilderness as he's building channels on the side of mountains called wadis where the water can be channeled from 17 miles away in Jerusalem. He's rebuilding the desert. Let me show you another slide. 
At the bottom of Masada, he built just giant cisterns. Giant cisterns where rainwater collected. And some historians say in one rainfall, he could capture enough rain for 10,000 people for 10 years. You getting a picture of Herod? Yes? You got to understand the context. Next slide, please. He found a way. This I couldn't believe until I saw it. A way to store and preserve dates and figs and food. And this picture is from 1960s. A group of archaeologists exploring Masada and got into one of his storms and they found food that Herod had stored 2,000 years ago. And they ate it. I don't know. I don't know if they ate it. I'm just, <laughs> I, I don't know. In a picture of him going, you know. But is that incredible? 2,000 years ago. Next slide. You've got to get an understanding of what Herod is to understand this text. Next slide. He decided. Does anybody know what this is? Any historians? You know what that is? Cicero. Who said that? Very impressive. This is a picture of Caesarea. If there's anybody remember Caesarea, it's found all over the Gospels, right? Herod decides that he's going to build the state-of-the-art Greek city along the coast. The problem is that the coastline is all swampy and marshy, and you can't build anything. But he knows he can make a lot of money if he could reroute the shipping lines through this section of the shore. So he rebuilds the entire coastline. He drains the coastline, drains the marshes in the spot where nobody had been able to build. He builds a state-of-the-art city called Caesarea. And by the way, where does the name come from? Caesar. So he builds this city in honor of Caesar, right? He didn't stop there. On this city, he wanted to build a harbor. The largest harbor in the world at the time is 60 acres in Athens. Herod builds on 520 acres. Do you see the walls of the harbor? Caesarea. And he uses a new kind of concrete recently invented by the Romans, which could be set up underwater. He pours concrete 80 feet down underwater, ocean surface 100 feet wide, to build Caesarea in honor of. And there's one other thing. Some historians say he's coming back from Rome. And he's on a ship, he's looking at his sister, and he goes, it's not beautiful enough. It's not beautiful enough. And he says, cover the entire city in marble. So they did. Here's a picture <laughs> of one of the places where archaeologists could still find shards of marble on Caesarea. Are you getting an image of Herod? Yes? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. There's this legendary story that the city had been, uh, uh, next slide, please. The nearest freshwater source to get to Caesarea <laughs> Is 19 miles away. So he builds an aqueduct from the mountains to the city, 19 miles long. And each meter would fall a centimeter, 19 miles, perfectly, even to this day. You getting a picture of Herod? Let's keep going, okay? In 19 BC, next slide, please. He begins a massive Jewish temple rebuilding program. It's his way of trying to curry favor with the Jews, right? Who hate him. So he had the Temple Mount enlarged. Can you tell the Temple Mount? <laughs> he hires 18,000 people to rebuild the temple. When he built the temple, he built it with what are now called Herodian stones. Here's the thing about Herodian stones. They're 10 feet by 10 feet by 80 feet, and they weigh hundreds of, hundreds of tons. And here's the thing. At the time when they're building the temple, historians say not a sound of chisel was heard. What does that mean? They were cut somewhere else, and brought to Jerusalem. And people are going, where do they have the machinery to carry tons and tons of stones to rebuild the temple? Next slide, please. Herod decides that he wants to build a palace between Jerusalem and his home country of Idumea. And he decides this. He says, I want to build a temple 
Because, you know, one on Masada is not enough. And one in Jerusalem is not enough. And he says, I want to build this temple exactly halfway. And he says, oh, by the way, he calls it the Herodium. He says, oh, by the way, I want to build this temple on top of a mountain. Problem? There's no mountain midway between Jerusalem and Edomea. So you know what he does? He says, I want you to build a mountain. So he had people build a mountain. Next slide, please. This is some of the remnants. Next slide, please. You can see it from a distance. It kind of looks awkward, doesn't it? Flat lands and boom, a mountain. Where did that come from? Herod said, build me a mountain so that I could build a temple for me halfway. Next slide, please. Last slide. Hey, you guys want something really cool? Listen to this. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives where you can see this mountain. And then behind it, you can see the Red Sea. And Jesus says to his disciples, this is so cool. Listen, in Matthew chapter 17, oh, you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say what? <gasps> to this mountain. Huh? See, we, 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 we read the New Testament going, boy, that sounds like a lot of faith. Move to and another place, Jesus says this, Matthew 17, uh, 20, 20, 21, 21. I truly tell you, if you have faith, do not doubt. You can say to this mountain, go through yourself into the sea, and it will be done. Do you know what Jesus was saying, disciples? You think King Herod's impressive? You think his kingdom is impressive? He's powerful, said it. He says, I'm about bringing about a kingdom where if you belong to it, what he's doing is going to seem like child's play. Hello. Is that good news? Wow, wow, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you getting a pic- you getting a picture? You're getting a picture? So imagine if you're one of the disciples, you're sitting there going, if you can see this mountain, they're not going, what are you talking about mountain? He's going, Herod built that mountain. He had people move it and build it. And you're saying, your kingdom, some other kingdom, some other king, we could do even great. Oh, yes. Let's keep going. Herod's personal life. Herod has 11 wives and 43 kids. He was a busy guy. What'd you say? Mountains and babies, yes. Herod was about mountains and babies. 43 kids. He became suspicious of one of his wives. And when Herod was going on a trip, he said to one of his assistants, if I die on this trip, execute her. He didn't die, he comes back. And his assistant had told his wife about what Herod had said. Herod comes home and his wife seems a little distant. I wonder why, you know. So he had her executed anyway. He became suspicious of one of his sons plotting against him. Historians say he drowned his son in the family pool. Two of his older sons, he believed, wanted his kingdom behind his back. He brought them out. And just, he brings them out in front of all of his attendants, and he goes, make a defense for yourself. Is this true? And historians write this gut-wrenching. The sons are literally like, Dad, Dad, we don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? We don't want your kingdom. And Herod has him executed anyway. Do you begin to understand why Herod would order the murder of boys two years and older? He is executing his wife. He is executing his own children because of his paranoia. You see the kind of man he is? Herod's rule. Herod's rule. The religious establishment. At one point, he had a dispute with the governing body of the Jewish people, the religious elites, so he had them executed. Twice, he killed the high priest. And at one point, he gathers the most influential Jews to the Hippodrome in Jericho, which is like a horse track, big stadium. He had the stadium filled with the most influential Jews 
And then he had the soldiers barricade the doors. And this is what Herod said. When I die, I want you to slaughter everyone in the stadium so that I will be guaranteed that on my death there will be weeping and mourning in Jerusalem. Josephus, Jewish historian, says, Herod was cruel to all alike, one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. Question. If you're a Jew, God's people living in Jerusalem, what's life like for you? Let's dig a little bit deeper of what it was like for them. Herod also oversaw the economic systems. Let me give you a map of Jerusalem. Map of Jerusalem. Do you see the map of Jerusalem? That thing right there, okay? It's the city. You guys see any farmland in the city? No, there's no farmland. Why? It's a city. People living in tight quarters. Herod lives in the city of Jerusalem where he rules with absolute authority and controls everything. He controls the religious establishment. And the economy is dictated by him as well. You have Herod and the elites and the wealthiest of the wealthy serving Herod, living in the cities. The problem is, in the city, there's no farmland. The question is, where do people get their food? Historians believe that 80 to 90% of the people in Jesus, they were involved in agricultural work. How do you know this? What are Jesus' parables about? Wheat, farming, fishing, soil. He's talking to everyday people who are living on the land. Most of Jesus' parables are about the life of working class peasants. He's telling stories about real people working off the land. So 80 to 90 people, 80 to 90% of the people are providing the food, the fish, and the goods to be eaten. And you have a small minority of the wealthy, the haves living in Jerusalem, who are living off of the food and resources provided by 80 to 90%. Some historians say that Herod took 20 to 30% of all the grain and took 50% of all the fish. So let's say that you're a small peasant fisherman. You spend all night fishing, and you come to the shore of Galilee, and you're unloading your boat. Here's what Herod do. He had one of his attendants. They were called teloni, or tax collectors, waiting at the shore. And he would say, Herod gets half. I get whatever the heck I want to. Today I feel like getting two. You get one. Herod gets five. I get three. You You begin to understand why tax collectors are so hated. Or let's say you're a farmer. You've harvested all year, all year, and your family is starving. And here comes one of his tax collectors to say, Herod gets a third or three parts. I get two parts, and you get one. The people are living in heavy debt. You could barely feed your family. People, many believe, were living 80%, 90% taxation. You had to pay the Roman tribute tax because Caesar claims he's God. Taxes to Herod transit trade tax, temple tax, special offerings, and that the temple authorities demanded a special festival throughout the year. So as a result, people are losing their family land because they no longer pay and continue to pay. And that's why Jesus comes and says, when you pray, here's how you pray. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Why? Literally, sometimes, that's all you could eat. And then he says, forgive us our what? Debts. As we forgive our what? This is an environment in which people are living under taxation, under the oppression and justice. Herod is so paranoid that one, that, that, that the historians say that he would wear commoner's clothes, walk out and be amongst the people, and he would listen to what people say, and if someone says something bad about him or his rule, he would have them executed. So you're living in a time in which you know somebody who's been killed, or you know somebody who knows somebody who's been killed. You're living under 80, 90% taxation. You're working off the land, but you could barely feed your family. You're going into heavy debt. And oh, by the way, Mary's husband, Joseph, is a carpenter 
winter, living far away from his homeland where they farmed. Why? People are having to get everyday daily jobs and go where the jobs are just to feed their family. Question. In this environment, Jesus comes and says, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the what? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover your sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Question, do you think they heard this differently than you and I hear today? Church, yes? Yes! When Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has proclaimed, he has, he has commissioned me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor are like, what? What? There's good news? What? What? Another king? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to set the captives free. What? I know somebody who's been in prison. I know someone who's living in debt. Somebody has come to deal with this? What did it mean for them? What did it mean for them? Do you get the sense of the context in which they live? The Jews believe that they're God's people. And so what's kicking in at this time, and I'm glad Michael kind of shared some of this up front, what's kicking in at this time if you're God's people and you're living under Herod's rule and Herod's reign for year after year after year, there is this profound sense of doubt and despair. You're God's people. And you're going, God, what's up? What's up? We're your people. We're living in a land of injustice, oppression, where Herod rules with brutality and with violence. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Marginalization and violence are a normal way of life. The question that people are asking, the question that people are asking in the context in which the birth of Jesus comes is this. Is Herod always going to rule? Is Herod always going to be on the throne? Is life always going to be like this? There's this profound sense of not only doubt, but despair. God, if you're so good, then why is an unjust lunatic still on the throne? God, if you're so good, why do you allow that? Has anybody ever asked that? God, if you are so good, why do some people seem to get more and more while others struggle just to get by? God, why did the righteous suffer while the wicked continue to prosper? God, I have been faithful to you and have tried to do the right thing. Why is this happening to me? Anybody ask? Why does life seem so unfair? God, if you're so good, why do you allow evil men to traffic young, innocent girls for sex? God, if you're so good, then why are tyrants and dictators allowed to get away with injustice? God, people are starving. Why famine? Their questions are your questions and my questions this morning. God, if you're so good, why cancer? If you're so good, why divorce? If you're so good, why AIDS? If you're so good, why are we just struggling to get by? God, if you're so good, why do you allow stuff like this? Where are you? God, can you hear me? Are you too busy? When is God going to show And it isn't in this context 
that a bunch of wise guys come from the east and looking at Herod and says, we heard that the real king of the Jews has been born. Oh, you're not hearing me, see? <laughs> feel like I'm in a black church. It isn't to this context. It isn't to this context that the Magi come. Are you hearing me? This kind of magic come and go to Herod of all people. Oh, by the way, we heard that the real king of the Jews has been born. Do you know where we can find him? <laughs> is this good news for the people? Yes, because it is in this context that Herod comes. It is in this context that the revolutionary message of Christmas breaks into it. And Matthew wants to ask you and me a simple question for this sex. He's saying... Is Herod king? Or is this baby king? Is Herod king? Does he rule and reign? Or is this baby king? Is wealth king? Is power king? Is influence king? Is success king? Or is this the real king of the Jews? Oh. Do you know if I preach this message in Egypt... In Syria, people would explode out of their chairs and go, yes, there is another king who is on his way to establish another kingdom. And the tyrants, injustice, oppression, suffering, the poor, this king has something to say about that. What is Jesus' message? I have come so he can be forgiven of his sins and go to heaven. No, his message is Mark chapter 1, verse 15, 16, what? This is Time has come. The kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe what? The good news. What is the good news? He came to forgive you since you can go to heaven. No. The good news is that a new king who is establishing a new kingdom is on his way. And this kingdom is not about crushing people. It's about loving people. It's not about brutality and violence. It's about justice. This king. This king, this king is on his way. Is this good news to you? Oh, good Lord, wake up, people. Christmas is an escape for us, and you missed the point. Christmas is about real God breaking into the real world and saying, a new king establishing a new kingdom is on its way. Oh, good Lord, people. This is good news. Amen. Can I get an amen? His kingdom is not about violence and oppression, taking advantage of the weak. And the people there are going, that's all we've ever known. He goes, I know that's all you've ever known. But this king is coming to establish a kingdom of justice, love, and peace. Shalom. Yes, it's good news spiritually for those estranged from God. But the people who first heard it, they're like, oh, it's good news every way. Every way. How's the story about politics? Matthew's asking, what do you think about Herod? What do you think about his kingdom? What do you think about his government? What do you think about his administration? Maybe time for a change, time for a revolution. And Isaiah says what? Chapter 9, verse 6. I love this. 
For to us a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. You know, when you just sing the, his name is Jesus, Jesus. Good Lord, I just butchered that song. That song, when you sing it, you know what you're thinking about? You're not just thinking about, oh, peace. You're thinking about a king who is coming to establish a new kingdom, a new administration, a new rule and reign that is going to solve everything that is wrong with this world. So when you're singing it, you're not just thinking about my peace and my God. You're thinking about Syria, Egypt, Africa, North Korea. You're thinking of all parts of the world where people do not know about this king who came to establish a new rule. What did it mean for them? It meant good news economically. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and I've come to preach good news to the poor. And I know for some of us, good news to the poor? Good Lord, Peter, I'm going shopping, spent a couple hundred bucks on Christmas present today. What the heck are you talking about? But imagine if you're one of those people and you and your family are in debt because you can't pay off the debt. You and your family are struggling just to get by. You are poor if you and your family, right? And a guy comes and says, hey, have you heard the good news? Have you heard the good news? What? A new king is on the scene. Translation, Herod is going down. I don't know why I want to just continue to do this. I just want to get my jacket. How is this about worship? It's about the fact that all the heirs of this world eventually die and their kingdoms burn out and fade away. But the kingdom of God just keeps going and going and going. Who is king? Who is king? He's saying, Herod's kingdom, you saw the pictures, pile of rocks, pictures in history book. Herod, dead. His son died. His son died. His son died. His son died. Our king, he lives today. He lives today. He lives today. And his kingdom is going to go on and on and on and on and on. You can get up, Michael, if you want to. I'm almost done here, folks. I'm almost done. Carlton, come on up. Come on up. How is the story about hope? How is the story about hope? I know that there's some of us sitting here, and while Michael was saying that, we resonated because our question is, the question of the day, is Herod always going to rule? Our question for some of you. Is God, is life always going to be like this? And the message of Christmas is a baby has been born. And no, it will not. Because a new king, establishing a new kingdom is on its way. So I want to tell you today, I'm going to tell you that the message of Christmas is simply this. Herod does not have the last word. Oppressors will not have the last word. Injustice will not have the last word. Human traffickers will not have the last word. Slave traders will not have the last word. Sin will not have the last word. Even death will not have the last word. Cancer will not have the last word. Divorce will not have the last word. AIDS will not have the last word. Word and unemployment, even unemployment does not have to have the last word because he who sits on the throne and rules and reigns today says, I get the last word. That is the message of Christmas. So my message to you is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, 
but on what is unseen. Give us eyes of faith, Lord. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Church, I want to tell you today, God is a God of history and concrete reality who came to deal with the real world with real problems. This is a God who is in the midst of concrete reality of flesh and blood, of taxes, money, and politics. So when you feel like you're wasting away, when you are tempted to give in to fatalism and hopelessness, remember this Christmas message. God promised the Messiah and he delivered. Not just in Bethlehem, but at Calvary. God has never lied to us. Never. 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 God is never. So we can trust God in the midst of our heartaches and our heartbreaks. We can trust God with our angst and anger. We can trust God with our fears and failures. And we can trust God with our brokenness and our bitterness. We can trust God for the things we can barely see with eyes of faith. Because I want to tell you today that God is so very good. And hallelujah, God is so very in control. He is our, say it with me, church, 